0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now going to cover John 12, verses 20 through 34. I'm going to entitle this passage, On the Monday after Passion Week, Jesus Reflects on His Approaching Death. This is an interesting passage. It's not talked about too much as a passage. A lot of pieces of it are quoted a lot, but not as a passage. We are in Passion Week, the Monday of Passion Week. Jesus will be killed the next Friday and resurrected the next Sunday. In the previous section of John, which is verses 12 through 19, we had the triumphal entry, which happened the day before on Sunday. And before the triumphal entry, in the first 11 verses of John, we had the anointing of Jesus for burial, but that probably happened on Tuesday, not not before Sunday. And even before that, Lazarus was resurrected. I don't know when exactly. I'd say, you know, two, three, four weeks earlier, maybe. I don't know. But that's our context. So let's start with verse 20. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. This is the Passover, the last Passover, the, the same Passover where Jesus had the Last Supper. that th- Thursday, it was coming up Thursday. This was Monday of Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. Now who these Greeks were, there are lots of options. I'll give them to you real quickly. They could have been Gentiles. They could have been God-fearing Gentiles, people who were just attracted by the Jewish religion and wanted to learn some more, so they went down to the temple, to the, to the festival. They could have been what were called proselytes of righteousness, which were, I'll call them capital P proselytes. They were actually circumcised, they kept the law, and they were allowed to actually eat the Passover meal. That's option number two. Option number three, that could have been Gentiles who were proselytes of the gate. I'll call them little P proselytes. They were not circumcised. They couldn't eat the Passover meal. They could just go down there and, and join the crowd in the festivities, but couldn't but they couldn't actually sit down and eat the Passover meal. They could have been Hellenistic Jews, either Jews living in Greece or Hellenistic Jews who were living in Israel. And of course, they didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek, and they were affected by the Greek. They were afflicted, I should say, with the Greek culture, the famous Hellenic Jews. So we're not sure who these guys were, but they were not Jews per se. They were not your Hebrewistic Jews. We know that. And that is going to judge the interpretation of this passage because Jesus says some things that don't sound anything at all like they've got anything to do with these Greeks because they, these Greeks are going to ask a question. They want to see Jesus. We go to verse 20 through 22. So they, whoever these Greeks were, came down for the Passover. They were in the temple. Jesus was in the temple. And, of course, they're probably in the court of the Gentiles on the outer court of the temple because they couldn't go into the court of the women or the court of men because only Jews could do that, assuming these were Gentiles and not Hellenistic Jews. So they're probably in the court of the Gentiles. And we read in verse 21, So they came to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, Philip is from Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was near to where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. It was sort of a Gentile area, and so that might be why these Gentiles were attracted to Philip. They might have actually known him from up there. We don't know. And Andrew was from Bethsaida also. That's probably why Philip went and told Andrew. So we've got some Greeks here. Greeks in a highly Jewish context, but they're Greeks talking to some of the disciples of Jesus who might have been familiar with Greeks because they lived amongst Greeks or Gentiles. Now, Philip may have gone to see Andrew. He went to see Andrew first, then both of them went to see Jesus. Philip may have consulted with Andrew on the propriety of the Greeks requesting to come see Jesus, and see means to have an interview with Jesus. Why? Why? Because the disciples have been instructed earlier by Jesus not to go to the Gentiles. You remember when Jesus sent out the twelve, for example, he said, Don't go to the lost don't go to the Gentiles, but only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so here we have some lost sheep that are not of the Israel fold, of the Jewish fold, wanting to talk to Jesus, and so the disciples are saying, Well, I'm not sure this is this is in our job description here. So they go see Jesus. We read now in verse twenty three and twenty four. Jesus replied to them, replied to Andrew and Philip. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I assure you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces a large crop. Now, if you're like me, you're asking, what in the world has this answer got to do with these Greeks wanting to see Jesus? It doesn't sound like it's got anything to do with it. Well, the key is in verse 24. If this grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it produces a large crop. In other words, Jesus is referring to the fact that he is not just going to die for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's going to die for the sheep that are not of the, Israeli fo- of the Jewish fold. He's going to die for Gentiles too. And that's what got him on this subject about him dying for the, for the world, for the, for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. He says, "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified." The Son of Man, of course, is the messianic title that Jesus always used for himself. It came from Daniel 7:13 and 14, where the Son of Man ascended into the ancient of days and received a kingdom that would last forever and ever." So it's a perfect title for Jesus. Nobody else used it of him that we know of, but he did. And this the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How? By being killed. And then resurrected. The resurrection, of course, is when he would be glorified. There's a lot of glory when you get resurrected. Jesus refers to his death by saying a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies. He he refers to nature. He refers to agriculture. You put a little grain of wheat in the ground and boom, big old stalk comes up. Lots of wheat comes out. And what Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm going to die. But there's going to be lots of resurrected Christians following me. People who were born again of the Holy Spirit of Christ, constituting the church of Jesus Christ which is going to flood the earth and fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, to back that up a little bit, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that the Gentiles will make the spiritual harvest a lot bigger than if it was just Jews. That's where where Jesus gets that phrase, large crop. Adam Clark says, The time is just at hand in which the gospel shall preach to all nations, the middle wall of partition broken down, and Jews and Gentiles united in one fold. Also, I might add, that Jesus was probably preparing his disciples against the shock of his death. He's saying, look, it's going to look bad. You know, I'm going to be dead. You're going to be running. But there's going to be a large crop coming. So don't worry. My death will not be in vain. We go to verses 25 and 26. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, Jesus is thinking about his death. It's only going to be a few days later. This is Monday. He's going to die Friday. So he's thinking about his death. And now he's talking about disciples, people who want to follow him, like these these Gentiles who want to see Jesus. And, and of course, who knows what they're thinking. They might be thinking, hey, we want to be a part of this big Messianic kingdom. You're starting here. Power, glory, honor, riches, power. I word just said power. Getting rid of the Romans. But Jesus is trying to prepare them for the shock that he's going to die. So he says the one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And what he means is is that if you think more of your life than dying for jesus your current life your job your security your family your money whatever well then you're not worthy to be as disciples and you're going to lose your life you're going to build your house on the sand the flood's going to come wash it away and you're going to be destroyed i just heard a, a great story actually it's a great and terrible story about the 2008 crash here in america middle-sized town in arizona very sort of recreation oriented made half the speed boats in America, full of golf courses and fancy stuff, a bunch of rich people. A guy that was out there that I was doing some business with, he was telling me, he says, we were foolish. We thought it would never end. I walked out of a bank with a million dollars in credit line and all the banks were saying was, how much do you want? They wouldn't check your credit worthiness or your experience in business. Just how much money do you want? We'll give it to you. You pay us back with interest and we'll all be happy. He said the money was flowing like wine. And when that crash happened in 2008, he said he personally knew 13 people who killed themselves because they had lost all their money. That was one of the most dramatic stories. I just heard that story two or three days ago. That's one of the most dramatic stories I've ever heard about the love of money being the root of all evil. Loving your life, you're going to lose it. I just passed by a lumber company today in my hometown. And... During that crash, one of the owners who had invested a lot in that lumber company went out behind that lumber company and shot himself dead. I don't—I didn't know the man, but I assumed he loved his life and he lost it. You know, there's other things besides suicide that one can do when you lose all your stuff. Uh, bankruptcy. Call a lawyer, go bankrupt, and start over and be poor. You'll probably be happier anyway, but don't shoot yourself. But at any rate. This is so true, and, and the and the opposite is true, too. If you give up all of your worldly stuff, like C.T. Studd gave up his honor as a cricket star and he lived in a frippin' mansion and make Benny Hinn be ashamed of his little hut compared to C.T. hut mansion, he gave it all up so he could live in China and I, in the 1800s. And I'll tell you, I've lived in China for 23 years. I can't imagine what it was like living in China. Of course, he eventually ended up going to India and Africa, I think, after that. Much uncomfortable circumstances why because he didn't care about all that honor and all that money all he cared about was the kingdom so he's got eternal life now he's, nothing's going to take the life he's got away now he's living forever with jesus now in heaven and who cares about his cricket prowess or his daddy's money so jesus says in verse 26 if anyone serves me he must follow me if anyone serves me he must follow me where i am there my servant also will be now if you think about it that's what servants do the master goes and the servant follows. Every movie I've ever seen it's always been that way. Likewise, if you're going to be a servant of Jesus, if he goes to the cross, you go to the cross. If he dies, you die with him. And then when he resurrects, you resurrect with him. You are raised with him. If anyone serves, the me, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. In other words, you're going to lose all your honor in this world, but you're going to get plenty of honor from God the Father. Now, of course, this is, what I'm saying sounds very easy. This is the hardest thing in the world to do to love your life less than you love Jesus' life. Very, very hard. He said this in other places too, Matthew 10:39. Anyone finding his life will lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me will find it. And losing his life, I think, could, goes all the way to the extreme of being killed, dying, not just losing your money. Luke 14:26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And here I need to talk about that word hate. In our verse at hand, John 12:25, Jesus says, The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It does not mean that you absolutely, objectively hate your life. It means that compared to the way you love your life in heaven with Jesus, the way you love things on this earth pales in the comparison so much you can call it metaphorically hate. It's a relative term, not an uh, absolute term. The English does not translate well from the Greek. It just doesn't. And every time, you know, you got to hate your mother. That's that's what people always say. Got to hate your mother and father. I don't want to be a Christian because I got to hate my mother and father. That's not what it means. It means compared to how much you love Jesus, you love your mother and father less than that. And so much so that the contrast makes it appear to be hate. But actually, in human terms, it's not hate. You still love them. But just compared to your love for Jesus, it pales into insignificance. Now, of course, Jesus is the supreme example of not loving his life on this earth. He gave it up. He hated his own life to the point of offering himself up for crucifixion so he's our extreme supreme example we want to be like jesus we want to follow his example that means we might have to give up our life but of course the jesus and i don't have the verses in front of you but of course he promises you he's going to give you back in this life and in the world come, and to come and sometimes mixed with persecution lands fields houses family there's your prosperity message benny hen give it all up take some persecution John 12, verses 27 through 28. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. When you say an hour, it means this time. Because remember, the time is short. Just a few more days between Monday and Friday. He's going to die. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And what God was saying to Jesus here is, I have glorified your name. How? By doing all all the miracles that God did through Jesus? As Gill puts it in the incarnation, the ministry, the obedience and miracles of Christ, and particularly in that late one in rising Lazarus from the dead. Oh, yeah, God's glorified Jesus big time. That's why Jesus had such a big crowd following him at the end of his ministry here. Now, when God told Jesus, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again, he's referring to the fact I'm going to even give you more glory when I raise you from the dead, because, boy, that's that's the biggest miracle of them all. It's one thing to raise somebody else to dead, but when you raise yourself from the dead, when you walk out of the tomb yourself, nothing could be more glorious than that. And God says, I promise you. Now, God, of course, was bucking Jesus up here. Jesus was human. He said, my soul is troubled. He's just like any other human being. He knows he's going to die. And human beings don't like to die. It's built into us. It's part of our human nature. It's a principle of self-preservation. We don't like to die. And Jesus was not any different than any other human being. He didn't like to die. It was not something that was pleasant. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. He's sweating, sweating drops of blood or as his sweat fell as like blood from his, from his brow. That was, that was big time pressure. He was feeling it. And he went through it. He went through something very, very terrible for us. And his soul was troubled. Now, so God the Father is trying to encourage Jesus here at this time when Jesus said his soul was troubled. And notice also that he is giving a vindication to Jesus because think about people that are watching Jesus and thinking, hot dog, this is the Messiah. Whoa. And then all of a sudden the Messiah is starting to say, you know, I I just don't feel good. My soul is troubled. That'd be like Larry Bird taking... The Celtics into the seventh game of the NBA finals and said, boys, I don't know about this. I don't know if we can take these guys. No, Larry Bird's never going to say that. But here, Jesus, the Messiah, who's going to rule the whole world and knock out the Romans. Oh, now he's saying his soul is troubled. This is kind of frightening. Now, the NIV Study Bible points out that when Jesus prays to the Father, he says, Father, glorify your name. At first he says, save me from this hour. No, he didn't actually say that. He said, "What should I say, Father? Save me from this hour." He didn't. He, he was asking a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Of course, the Father's not going to save me from this hour. This is why I came for this hour to die. So he's not asking to get deli- uh, saved from the physical crucifixion that he's going to have to to suffer. Instead, he he prays, "Father, glorify Your name." Now, the NIV Study Bible says that what Jesus did here is he did not pray for his personal deliverance, but rather. His concern was for his heavenly Father, and so he prayed for his Father's glory. He did consider praying for his personal deliverance. What should I say? Save me from this hour? He considered it, but he pulled back from doing that. As the NIV Study Bible cogently points out, it says that his only prayer, as it turns out, was that God God would get the glory. God would get glory for what Jesus was going to do. Now, notice this is the third time in the Gospels where a voice came from heaven to justify jesus or to vindicate jesus at his baptized at his baptism this is my son, this here's my beloved son hear him he said this exact same thing at the transfiguration on the mount of transfiguration here's my beloved son hear him and in this instance here on monday of passion week in the temple the voice said jesus the father the father said i have glorified i have glorified my name and i'm going to glorify it again and the again of course they have glorified as all the miracles and ministry and teaching of Jesus before and glorified it again it means he was going to glorify it later at the resurrection we go now to verses 29 and 30 the crowd standing there heard it heard the voice from heaven heard the voice of god and said it was thunder others said that an angel had spoken to him jesus responded this voice came not for me but for you now first of all we have to reconcile an apparent discrepancy here some people heard thunder and some people heard voices well you could just say some people hear better than others even better than that though is i think what adam clark says is that some heard only the thunder well i just said that some heard the thunder and some heard the voice adam clark says that but john gill i think puts it better he said those closer to jesus hear the articulate words and those who are far off don't hear the articulate words they just hear the noise so it sounds like thunder now Those who heard heard that there were words coming from heaven assumed it was an angel because the Jews had a strong notion of the idea of angels conversing with men, as John Gill points out. Now Jesus said that voice came from heaven not for me, not for Jesus, and what he means is not chiefly for me or not merely for me. Of course the voice came for Jesus too to to encourage him, but but Jesus is saying it wasn't only for me, it was for you why did the voice come for jesus because it answered his prayer when he said glorify my name comforted him during his apprehension concerning his approaching death and that and god the father assured jesus of jesus's future glorification but now why did the voice come for you and this would possibly include these greeks who were down coming down to see jesus they hadn't had a chance to see miracles like the jews had and so God says, I'm going to give you a chance to see some miracles. I'm going to give you, I'm going, I'm going to give you Greeks a chance to hear my voice. That's Adam Clark's idea. I think James and Fawcett Brown's got a better idea. It's why the voice was for the people standing around Jesus. It was to correct any unfavorable impression Jesus' momentary agitation might have made. As I said, you know, messiahs don't usually express self-doubt. And so that voice was trying to convince those standing around, either Jews or Gentiles, whoever, that Jesus was the messiah. John 12:31 Now is the judgment of this world and of course what he's talking about is the cross and the resurrection that occurred after the cross where the devil where God beat the devil the devil the prince of death was beaten by the lord of life Jesus this is the judgment of the world the events that are coming shortly now the ruler of this world will be cast out the ruler of this world of course is satan now, people always ask this question, well, who rules the world, God or the devil? Well, this is, somebody just asked me that recently, a Chinese student of the Bible, and this is the way I answered it, I said, well, the devil, it says here, now the, the ruler of this world is the devil, he rules the world now, but he's only here at the mercy, at the concession of the Lord, he's on a short leash, sooner or later, God's going to kick him out. As a matter of fact, if you believe like I do, if you're a... I'm Ill or a postmill. I'm a postmill. And you look at Romans. at Revelation chapter 20, the devil is bound. That means the devil can no longer stop the spreading of the gospel throughout the world. And so that means that's how the rule of the world will be cast out. he would be cast out of ruling the world. He doesn't rule the world anymore because he's lost his power to make people not believe in Jesus. I can go up to somebody and lead them to the Lord. And if that person is in the elect, the devil ain't going to stop that conversion. So anyway... We can at least say the devil was the ruler of the world up until the cross. After that, the prince of the power of the air. Now, he is called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians. So, you know, he's got some kind of power, but his power is shrinking. And I like to say this. The number of demons that are in the world is fixed. The one-third of the angels that fell from the foundation of the world before the world was formed, one-third. That number is fixed. The demons don't get married and have baby demons. That number is fixed. But humans, Christians, are increasing in number constantly, which means that per the number of demons that are available to, ha- to harass a given 100 Christians is shrinking as every day that goes by. That always gives me a little bit of comfort. But even if they weren't shrinking, we have the power to take authority over demons. They are subject to it, just like the disciples said. They've fallen down from heaven. They, the demons are subject to our name. And Jesus said, I saw them fall from, saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So we don't need to worry about demons. But anyway, that's the good news. The rule of this world is cast out by that crucifixion and resurrection. And Jesus predicted it. And he said the world was going to be judged because of it. Because the world did not believe in Jesus. And so, hey, there's going to be terrible judgment for the world, for any of those in the world who do not believe in Jesus. Now, of course, when you see that word world, you always have to say, well, what does that mean? Does it mean the Gentiles in the world or does it mean the whole planet? Well, in this case, I think it's the whole world. Gentile, Jewish, anybody that doesn't believe in God is going to get judged. We go to verses 12, John 12, 32, and 33. As for me, Jesus continues, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to signify what kind of death he was about to die. Now, it's ironic. He uses the phrase lifted up. Usually when you say lifted up, it usually means exalted. In fact, in some places in the New Testament, it does mean exalted. But here Jesus is using it in the sense of lifted up on the cross. So he's lifted up on the cross and degraded horribly in the eyes of the world, and yet he draws all people to himself and becomes the Savior of the world. As the NIV study Bible puts it, actually dying on the cross was the supreme exaltation of Jesus. He was not only lifted up geographically in space as he was put up on the cross, he was also lifted up in glory because now he's the Lord of the world, and it's just a matter of time before he takes full possession of his kingdom. The scriptures that say he is lifted up, as being crucified, John three fourteen. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That's referring to when Moses held up that brazen serpent when the people got bit by scorpions and they looked at this brazen serpent. The serpent is a snake, symbol of sin, and they looked upon, and and, and the brazen serpent was a symbol of the cross. And so they looked at the at the brazen serpent, and their bites went away, their affliction went away, like we look at the cross. And the, and the serpent, or the brazen serpent, was supposed to symbolize Jesus bearing sin because it's ugly, sinful, and so forth. So, so Jesus takes away our sin, and that was Old Testament type being f- fulfilled in the New Testament. John eight twenty eight. So Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things when you lift me up on the cross. Now when He says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. I will draw all people to myself. What does all people mean? It means all men without distinction. It does not mean all men without exception, because if it meant that, then there would be universal salvation, which would contradict about half the New Testament. It would contradict all the verses. It says there's a hell that unbelieving people will go, and there's judgment, and Jesus said that over and over again, and I don't know how in the world anybody can be a universal reconciliationist unless he just decides he's going to write his own Bible. So it means all men without distinction, the whole world, whether, no matter whether you're Jew or Greek or free or slave or whatever your status is, whatever your ethnic group is, whatever your nationality is, it doesn't matter. Christianity is going to be all over the world, which it is. There's Christians everywhere now. You can, have, you can hardly go to any corner of the globe and not find Christians. I went to, I was on the west end of, of Xinjiang province about, I don't know, 15 years ago. And that was a Muslim tribe. Kazakhs from Kazakhstan. Actually, they, we weren't in Kazakhstan. They were crossing the border into Xinjiang, and there was a, somebody who spoke their language. Our bus driver, actually, and, no, excuse me, it wasn't our bus driver. He was the guy that was leading us around, and he sat there and he witnessed to this guy in the Kazakh language. I don't think the guy spoke Mandarin at all. And he, the uh, the Chinese guy who witnessed to the in the the Kazakh guy to the Kazakh man. He said that he had never, that Kazakh man had never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the word, didn't know who he was. So it was explained to him and he accepted Christ right there in, in that tent. So even way back in the far boonies of China, in the middle of Muslim territory, there are people that are believing in Jesus now. So Jesus is being exalted and he's going to draw all people to himself, all kinds of people, even if they're Uyghurs. Everybody is coming. Not everybody individually, but everybody categorically. Now, when Jesus says this, I will draw all people to myself. Let's go back to the context. Remember, these are Greek people that want to see Jesus. I'm assuming that they, they're seeing Jesus now, that Andrew and Peter had introduced, them, introduced these Greeks to Jesus, and he's still talking. And he says, I will draw all people to myself. Think about how significant that is. The NIV study Bible points that out and says It says it is significant that Greek Gentiles were present because Jesus is now talking about the whole world is going to get saved. The whole world is going to know about Jesus, including Greeks, not just Jews, because everybody's talking about Jesus being the Jewish Messiah. He says, wait a minute, I'm going to draw all people, including you Greeks, I'm going to draw you to myself. All right, he said all this stuff in verse 33 to signify what kind of death he was about to die. He's predicting his death. Now we go to verse 34, and we'll shut it down for this audio. Then the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the scripture that the Messiah will, will remain forever. Now, this crowd is including Jews now, because the well, that God-fearers might have known some scripture, but it's probably Jews as well as the Gentiles there. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the scripture that the Messiah, Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? What kind of Messiah is going to be killed is basically what they're saying. That makes no sense. He's supposed to remain forever. He's supposed to live forever. He's supposed to be a big shot riding on a horse. Who is the Son of Man? What do you mean, Son of Man? Must be lifted up. Well, as I already told you, the Son of Man is a Messianic title. It came from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Used of Jesus all. In fact, if you look, when Jesus used that term, it was usually in times when he was at him, when he was exalting himself as the Messiah. I think if you went back and did a Bible study on that, you'd find that was, that would be true. I haven't done that yet. I've just noticed that as I was going through. I said, oh, it's interesting. He's always talking about the Son of Man right when he wants to show that he's the messiah but at any rate these people are expressing doubts now they say the scripture says the son of man will last will will remain forever well here's some scriptures they could have been referring to psalm 89 36 his offspring will continue forever his throne like the sun before me i'm not sure who the his offspring it might be david's offspring will continue forever his throne like the sun before me this is quoted by the NIV Study Bible. In the NIV Study Bible, John Yellen, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown quote Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back forever. You are a priest like Melchizedek. Forever. You are a priest like Melchizedek, referring to Jesus, of course. So Isaiah nine seven. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom, the Messiah will, to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is quoted by the NIV Study Bible in Adam Clark. Daniel 7:14. and I've already mentioned this in passing. I'll mention it again. He was given authority to rule in glory in a kingdom. This is the son of man. He was given authority to rule and glory in a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. There's the Forever. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So if the Messiah's kingdom is never going to be destroyed, why are you talking about getting lifted up on a cross? They didn't understand that. And I can, I can sympathize with that. That's hard to understand. Psalm 89:28 28 through 29, I will always preserve my faithful love for him, and my covenant with him will endure. That's God will preserve his faithful love for the Messiah, for, for his son, and my covenant with him will endure. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as heaven lasts. As long as heaven lasts. Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings, the God of kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, never be destroyed, the fifth monarchy, if you will, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms, all those four worldly kingdoms, and bring them to an end, but will itself endure, how long? It will endure forever. So there was a lot of scriptural precedent for this, and the people knew it. So if the Messiah is going to live forever, how's the Messiah going to die? That's their main problem. As Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown put it, the idea of a crucified Messiah was entirely foreign to them. All right, we're going to leave this audio with the people perplexed. We'll take up Jesus' answer in the next audio as we continue this. We'll cover verses John chapter 12, verses 35 through 50. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoy this audio.